You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. It's, uh, it's good to see you guys. Thank you for joining us today. My name's Will. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 if you want to open your Bible or turn on an app. Um, and we're just going to be covering those two verses we read with Pastor Jabes. Um, fall is here. If you haven't figured it out, it's a little cooler. And um, it's spooky season. And we're going to be talking about a ghost today. We're talking about the Holy Ghost. And so it is a good, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of people's favorite time of year. It's probably my favorite month. And, um, and I, love, I love football. I love, um, I love fall. I love the weather. And, um, and Halloween's coming up. And so it's a, it's a fun time. And, um, and so it's a good time also to connect into your church. We have a trunk or treat that we're partnering with the city on. Um, James was talking about Kings Island trip and men's Bible study. And we have our women's Bible study that's ongoing. A lot of stuff happening. And so um, if you're new, please make sure you fill out one of those connect cards and get connected. Um, me or one of the other pastors would love to follow up with you. Um, talk, talk about you know, who we are as a church, what we believe, and also um, get you connected into the church. Find you a group or find you um, a group of people that you can that you can be discipled with. And so uh, we encourage you to, to dive in in that way. Um, now, in today's sermon, we're uh, looking at the Holy Spirit, um, who King Jimmy calls the Holy Ghost. And uh, we're going to look at um, him as the third person of the Trinity. So I want to frame up who he is um, in framework with what we've looked at the past two Sundays. And if you've missed the past two Sundays, um, we're spending three Sundays on one Greek run-on sentence from verses 3 to 14 in Ephesians 1 is one sentence in the Greek language um, that looks at the Trinity, looks at God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so as, as we're into this sermon series of looking at who we are, the first thing we see is that we are called upon by God to worship Him. And so to worship Him truly and rightly, we need to understand who we are and, and understand who He is. And so um, in week one, we looked at the Father and how He chose us before the foundations of the world. Last week, we looked at the Son and what he accomplished in his death and resurrection. And today we look at the spirit. And so first of all, let me define spirit. I wrote in my sermon notes that spirit is a noun. It's strong distilled liquor such as brandy, whiskey, gin, or rum. Um, that's the wrong definition. First service laughed more at that. The, the definition of spirit in English, and so what we get into is a little bit of a dicey translation issue, so I want to try to help us understand what the Bible means when the Bible says spirit. Okay, so in English first, uh, spirit means the non-physical part of a person. Another definition in English is um, of spirit, the spirit of someone are the qualities regarded as forming the character of a person. And so when we look at uh, what we mean when we say spirit, we mean something namely unseen. We can see the results of it. We can see the effects of it. But if I talk about your spirit, I'm probably talking about your personality, um, the qualities that make you who you are. Now, in Hebrew and Greek, there's a, there's a little more of a word picture that comes along with what's translated as spirit in the Bible. In Hebrew, it's ruah, and in Greek, it's pneuma, where we get the word pneumatology from. Um, but both mean breath or wind. And, and again, unseen, uh, but you can see the effects of it. And Jesus actually uses that illustration of the wind blows where it will, and you, can, you, you can't see where it's coming from or where it's going, but you can see its effects. And so this is the idea of God's Holy Spirit. All the way into Genesis chapter 1, you see God's Spirit hovering over the face of the deep as he creates uh, the world. And so 
Uh, this idea is important that there is an unseen part of who God is um, that affects things in our world that we do see. And so because the Holy Spirit is non-physical and unseen, there is a tendency to over-mystify him. Um, because, because he is spirit, because he is um, a person that we can't tangibly get a hold of, like Jesus, uh, we can't even really adequately visualize spirit, um, and because of that limitation, we tend to mystify it and make the Holy Spirit um, a, a subject of, of ghost stories almost. And so um, the manifestations of the Spirit in the church begin to look very spooky and kooky, if you will. Um, a, lot of, a lot of strange things happening and a lot of, um, a lot of uh, really unusual things happening when people over-mystify the Spirit. Now, the converse of that, and the other end of that, that pendulum swing would be someone who would just deny the Spirit's work altogether, um, who would say, well, I don't, I don't need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit just gave me the Bible, and I just, I just have the Bible, and that's it. And um, I, think, I think a healthy place to land is probably somewhere in the middle. And so if, you're, if you've traditionally been a person that, um, that you know, is very uh, mystifying of the Spirit and, and really leans into uh, looking for the supernatural, um, then I'm probably going to try to rein you back in from that a little bit. And if you're someone who never leaves room for that, then I'll probably try to rein you in from that end of the spectrum as well. If you think of, um, I've talked about this before, but charismaticism being one end of a spectrum and cessationism being another end of the spectrum. Charismaticism um, comes, from, uh, comes from the belief of spiritual gifts. Um, and so those, those people are um, most, most often Assemblies of God, Pentecostal, um, Apostolic, those denominations uh, would be called charismatic. Charismatic Christians, um, believing and affirming the current work of the spiritual gifts. And on the other end, um, cessationists, a lot, of, a lot of Baptists are cessationists, Presbyterians are cessationists. Um, you see a lot in that camp believe that when the Bible was finished, there were no more supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, if you're just curious or if you want something to ask me questions about, I probably fall somewhere in the middle of that in a camp that I would call a continuationist, meaning that I still affirm and believe the Holy Spirit does supernatural things in our lives, and he does things that, that are outside of nature and outside of just the natural workings of things, um, but I'm not necessarily looking for that to happen every day of my life. Um, and so I think that's a healthy place to be scripturally. Um, but I remember like, kind of on this journey, I grew up Baptist, and um, as I was studying and, and learning to preach, uh, you know, the tradition I come up in, they just give you a Bible and say, get up there and don't prep and just start yelling. And so that's how I learned to preach. Um, and that's not what I do today. I know some of y'all think that's what I do, but that's not exactly how I sermon prep. Um, but, but I remember um, a lot of churches that invited me to preach were Pentecostal churches. And so it was a completely different tradition for me. And I would go into these charismatic Pentecostal churches and um, I, would, I would see people exercising what they called spiritual gifts, things like speaking in tongues, which didn't sound like a language I'd ever heard. It just sounded like Bible to me. And I was really confused by that. And I remember talking to some of my Pentecostal friends and saying, hey, what are you doing when, when you're you know, babbling like that? Or what are you doing when you fall down on the ground? And what is, where is all this coming from? <clears throat> and they, they began to explain to me their viewpoint of how the Holy Spirit works. And I just remember being intrigued by that and praying so sincerely, God, if I'm missing something, can you fill that void? If I'm missing what I'm supposed to be doing as a Christian, can you show me what that's supposed to look like? If I'm supposed to have the gift of tongues when, when, I, when I become a Christian, can you please give me the gift of tongues, whatever that looks like, and I'll try to like babble a little bit. And none of that ever came to me. And I was really troubled by that. 
And I was like, if I'm really sincere in my faith and I want to serve Jesus and I see these people who seem to love Jesus too and they're exercising these things and they're telling me if I have more faith and I can also exercise these things, then why can't I exercise these things even though I sincerely want to? And I began to just study the scriptures and say, what does the Bible say? And I began to see, for example, when, when the Bible says tongues in an English translation, it, it literally just means language in Greek. And um, when we see in Acts chapter 2, for example, that they spoke in other languages, that's what they were doing. That there was a multicultural melting pot that happened on the Feast of Pentecost, and people from all nations who spoke all different languages were together, and God supernaturally gave them ability to speak other languages. I began to see, okay, this is how this is supposed to be exercised, and probably the reason that I haven't received the gift of tongues is because in West Virginia, everybody speaks English, or at least redneck, right? And so... <laughs> So this is, this is where I've begun to land on that. And I remember after I kind of uh, made that progression, I was, I was preaching one time at a Pentecostal church, and after I finished a sermon, uh, the pastor come up to pray over me, and uh, they say, we want to pray over Will, and they lay hands on me, and they began to pray over people, and people start falling down. It's like, it's kind of crazy. And, and so I, I was affirming my beliefs, and I'm receiving the prayer, trying to be respectful, got my eyes closed. And they begin to push on me to knock me down. I don't know if you guys have seen some of those Pentecostal circles where they do that. And I'm five foot eighteen. I was a little lighter then, but I was still a big old boy. And I'm like, I did that. I'm like, I ain't going nowhere. You ain't, you ain't knocking me down. I, there are people to catch me. I'm like, I don't trust y'all to catch me. I'm not falling down. And so I'm like really polite and finish prayer. And then as I finish prayer, I look over and I see my wife and they're praying over her and she just like crumbles. And I'm like, oh, I've got it all wrong. She just went down. And so I like rush over to her. I'm like, what happened? What'd you feel? What was it like? And she was like, they just kept pressing on me and I was freaking out. I wanted to leave me alone. So I just played dead. And I was like, okay, all right. That was a good plan. Way to go. Right. <laughs> so, um, so, so what, what, I have, what I have seen and experienced is a lot of misuse of that. Now, let me clarify that to say, I know that, I know that there's sincerity in people that practice those things, some. I think there is some charlatans that take advantage of emotion in those things. And though, where that line is is very difficult to decipher. But I think we always need to use the Bible to decipher it. And what does the scripture tell us the Holy Spirit is for? And let me, let me just give you a good litmus test for what the Spirit's doing in your life. One of the things I've, I've heard often is I just lost control. I just fell, I just fell back and you know, fainted because I lost control or I just started laughing uncontrollably because I lost control or I started speaking in a language I didn't understand because I just lost control. Well, Galatians chapter five tells us what the fruit of the Holy Spirit is. It lists nine things. And one of the nine things that's listed is self-control. The Holy Spirit does not take you over. The Holy Spirit does not, does not uh, take away your ability to control yourself. And so um, in worship, when I uh, shout amen or hallelujah, church, as you hear me do, that is an intentional thing that I'm doing. It's not that I've lost control of myself and God's just shouting through my lips. Or when I lift my hands, it's an intentional thing that I want to praise the Lord, that the Holy Spirit maybe has drawn my desire in with God's desire, but I want to give him praise. And so I raise my hands. You see, those things are not mystic things. Those things are God and biblical things that I have, have, have been enlightened in and the Holy Spirit has helped me to see are biblical. And so when we look at the book of Acts and we see all of these supernatural things happening, I want to remind you that there's a, an authenticating nature to the, to the book of Acts. Um, it is a time where um, in between Old and New Testaments, as Jesus has risen from the dead, where there is an authentication that God is doing in supernatural work. Um, and it probably happened more frequently than we see today. But I also want to tell you, just like there are uh, highlight reels for high school athletes so they can be uh, scouted and drafted by 
college scouts. Um, if you're going to make a highlight reel as a high school athlete, you don't put your bad plays in there, and and you don't you don't put all um, all your kind of mundane plays in there. You put your your best plays. And what Luke was doing when he wrote the Book of Acts was showing the miraculous things that God did to authenticate the resurrection of Jesus. And so it makes it seem more common to us when, in fact, God's just giving us a snapshot into it. So let me give you four things the Holy Spirit does, and then, um, and then we'll look at who he is in Ephesians 1 specifically, okay? So I've got four precursors and then two sermon points. I know I feel like Pastor Jeremy doing all this, but just bear with me. So first, first of all, I want to show you four things the Holy Spirit does. Number one, he convicts us of sin. Um, Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of their sin. John 16 verse 7 says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So Jesus says it's important for him to leave so that the Holy Spirit can come. And the Holy Spirit's job, his job, his first job description is to convict the world of sin. The second thing he does is he regenerates lost people. Ephesians 2 tells us that when we're lost, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. If we're dead, we need someone to bring us to life, regenerate us. And Titus chapter 3 tells us that that is a work of the Spirit. It says he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so the fact that we are Christians is a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brought us to life, and when we were awakened by the Spirit, we saw the beauty of the gospel, and we put our hope and trust in the gospel. Number three, the Holy Spirit, is his job is to empower us. Now, this is where um, if you want to grab coffee and talk about spiritual gifts, I'd love to talk to you about how these things are exercised that we see in the Bible. But at the end of one of the lists of spiritual gifts we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's as all these, referring to spiritual gifts, all spiritual gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And so the Holy Spirit empowers us to carry out spiritual gifts. And I believe the main purpose of spiritual gifts is the edification of saints and the, the progression of the gospel message to people who have not accepted it yet. And the fourth and final thing the Holy Spirit's job is, is to seal us, which is specifically what we'll talk about today in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. As we finish this run-on sentence in Greek, Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, who's that? We've got to figure out what's going on here when Paul says you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Again, he convicts us, he regenerates us, he empowers us, and he seals us or he holds us um, in his grasp. And so I have two sermon points for you. Um, number one is that the seal of the Spirit fulfills Jesus' promise. And so we'll see what, why does Paul call the Spirit the promised Holy Spirit. And secondly, the seal of the Spirit guarantees our inheritance. Um, this is a, a sure foundation and an assurance that we as Christians have. Okay. Number one, the seal of the Spirit fulfills Jesus' promise. Uh, the word seal in verse 13 of Ephesians 1 is the same word that's used to describe the branding of cattle. Now, I know that's not the most endearing thing to compare you all to livestock, but do you know that's the most frequent analogy for us in Scripture? That we are, um, we are like on the ranch of God, and, and we are his sheep, we're his cattle. And so in, in keeping with that analogy, we are branded um, in that way. Another way that that word was used was to describe um, the branding of slaves. 
Um, the apostles wrote in their letters, Paul particularly often calls himself a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. And um, in that time, they would also not just brand their cattle, but they would also brand their servants and their slaves. Um, this was a mark that was permanently put on them to, to show ownership. And the same word is used to describe authoritative seals of kings and governments um, at that time as well as today, just like we have a West Virginia uh, state seal, you know, the one with the farmer and the miner on it. Um, you might have a birth certificate that's required. You have a raised seal birth certificate. Um, it's the same type of deal. But in, in the first century, the word that, that Paul uses here would have taken the reader to either branding of cattle or a signet ring of a king. And a signet ring was something that a king would wear with a unique symbol or logo on it that when wax was melted onto a decree or a profession, um, that they would melt wax as they sealed that parchment. And then he would stamp with his ring, his royal decree, his royal seal. And, and it would only be allowed legally to be opened by who it was addressed to. Anyone else that would break that seal would be under the penalty of death. Um, and, and so this seal um, has the idea of of this ownership. And so when we are adopted into the family of God, Paul says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the wax melted onto our heart and that whereby God places his signet ring of a cross and says, you are mine. No one else has rights to you. No one else can touch you. Not even you yourself. You are bought with a price and you belong to me. That's a good thing. And what's the basis of this sealing? What's the basis of this assurance and this guarantee? It's the gospel. Verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Gospel means good news. And the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul calls it the word of truth. And then he says, And believed in him. And a chapter that is full of things like election and sovereign choice of the Father and predestination. Here's a very subtle command hidden in verse 13 to you you as we turn our eyes to the fact that God alone is responsible for our salvation, Paul reminds us, believe. When you believed in him, he says that there is a command to us that once the spirit wakes us up, our command is to believe in him. Listen, I don't know if you've ever sat down in a chair and the chair break and you go crashing to the ground, but there is little in life that's more embarrassing than that. Let me just tell you, I've done it a few times, all right? And it makes me a little hesitant every time I sit in a chair. I'm like scoping out the chair. Is it a, does it look sturdy? When I buy uh, camping chairs now, I buy like the big and tall. That's just a way of saying like you need more support. Like I buy those. And, um, and, and the, the word believe in Greek is pistuo, and it means to put your full weight in. I love the picture of this because if, if, if you, let me tell you this, you don't break a chair if you never put your full weight in a chair, but you also never rest if you never do that. Like if I just like hover squat over every chair, I'm, I'm actually doing more work than, than I am actually taking a break and resting in a chair. And, and the, the Greek word means to put your full weight in the gospel. And so have you believed in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And not just know that it's true with your head, but have you placed your full weight in that truth? That's what it means to believe. And I, I believe the way that Paul sets this up is that, that you are spiritually unable to do that without the Holy Spirit. 
You are unable to put your full weight in the gospel chair without the Holy Spirit doing something miraculous and supernatural in your soul and raising you to life. And it says that once you believe in him, it says you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You see, our branding, our seal is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that he resides and, and, and begins to live in us. Paul refers to him as the promised Holy Spirit. Let me show you this first from the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 36. God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel, and he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This was profound for the Old Testament saints because they knew nothing of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They knew of the Holy Spirit, but they didn't understand the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What this means is they, when they needed to hear from God, they needed to find a, a prophet, a man of God, who would hear from God, who would actually have God's Spirit upon him, not within him, but upon him, so that he could speak the word of the Lord to people. And so if they wanted to hear from God, they needed to find a prophet. And here, um, it says that he will put his Spirit within people. And the purpose of that is so that it would cause them to walk in his law. That means that the morality that God places on us, and we look at it, and we're like, I can never be good enough. I can never live up to the commandments that God has. I can never do the things that God wants me to do. That's why he has come to reside in you so that you can for the first time. So that you can choose goodness for the first time. So that you can do something that's in keeping with his law and commandments. Y'all ever do something like super nice and you're just like, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes like, sometimes I'll do something super kind and like very gracious and very Christian. And I don't even like that I did it. I'm like, I hate that I'm this way because like my sinful flesh is like, I don't want to be this kind. But the spirit in me is stronger than me that's in the world and in my flesh. That's what, that's what Ezekiel's talking about, that God's going to place his spirit within us and cause us. The word Ezekiel uses that, that he will cause us to do it. And what this means is that we, we realign our will to God's will and we begin to want the things that God wants. We begin to desire the same things that the spirit of God in us desires. And Jesus promised that this would be fulfilled. As the Old Testament saints longed for the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would be the savior, the son of God to come and save us. As they longed for that Messiah to come, they longed for this promise of the spirit to come with him. Jesus speaks of this. If you want to study the Bible a little more this week. Read uh, deeply John 14 through 16. John, John chapters 14, 15, and 16. Jesus speaks at length about the Holy Spirit coming. And if you're confused about the Trinity, like me, um, the Trinity is seen very clearly in these three chapters. Um, in John 14, 26, Jesus says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You see the Trinity at work in that verse? Um, you see the Father sending the Son and the Father also sending the Spirit. You see three persons but one God that we worship. And uh, Ephesians 1 tells us that this is all one God. We are monotheistic. We bring glory to one God, but he has manifested himself and explained himself to us, revealed himself to us in three persons. And we see him in Father, Son, and Spirit. 
And it says that the Spirit, his job is to teach us all things and to bring to remembrance what Jesus taught. That means the primary role of the Holy Spirit is that when you open your mouth, he helps you say the things you need to say. John 15, verse 26, it says, When the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That means the Spirit's job is to testify to the Son, to point people to the Son, to bring to remembrance the Son, to bear witness of the gospel. You see, the primary role of the Spirit is internal for the believer, not external in miracles. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, let me show this to you. Where, and I hope this would encourage you to not treat the Holy Spirit like some kooky or spooky thing. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus speaks to his disciples and he, he begins to tell them what's going to happen when the Holy Spirit indwells them. Can you imagine just like not, not understanding what's going to happen and Jesus saying a spirit is going to enter you? I mean, this had to sound like possession to the apostles, right? Like, I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. Like, we trust you, we love you, we get the Great Commission, all that stuff. But what's getting ready to happen, Okay. In Acts 1-8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You see, Jesus' promise, he doesn't lie in healings, doesn't lie in tongues, doesn't lie in supernatural things or falling down or losing control of our bodies or laughing uncontrollably during a worship song. Jesus' focus of the Holy Spirit is all rested in being a witness. The Greek word for witness is martus. It's where we get the word martyr from. It means someone who knows the truth and is willing to share it even if it kills them. Someone who knows the truth and has to speak it. That's what Jesus says the Holy Spirit is for. That when you don't want to invite that person to church, or you don't want to open your mouth and speak to someone because it's awkward or it might damage your relationship or you're fearful or you lack the courage to do that, that's where the Holy Spirit says you need to open your mouth and proclaim the goodness of Jesus and invite them into the family of God. That is the purpose of the Holy Spirit. He says you'll be my witnesses, not just here, but in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I want you to see the promise delivered to us in the Spirit. It's one of evangelism and advancement of God's kingdom. Jesus says in John 14, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Have you ever just thought about what Jesus is actually saying here? Those who believe in me will do greater works than me. Y'all ever walked on water before? I've tried it a couple times. It don't work. And, it, and it, tried it at Williams River a handful of times. My dad's tried it more than me. It don't work. Okay? But what does Jesus mean when he says, you'll do greater works than me? Does that mean like he walked on water, we walk on lava, we do something like more miraculous? See, that's what people tend to think is when they say, um, the Holy Spirit's going to enable me to do something greater, they get off base because they think that, that, that Jesus meant greater in quality. You see, we can't do greater in quality than Jesus. We can't die for people's sins. There's a, a, a New Testament scholar named Leon Morris who brings clarity to what Jesus is, is preaching about. He says, on the day of Pentecost alone, more believers were added to the little band of believers than throughout Christ's entire earthly life. There we see a literal fulfillment of greater works than these shall he do. During his lifetime, the Son of God was confined in his influence to a comparatively small sector of Palestine. After his departure, his followers were able to work in widely scattered places and influence much larger numbers of men. 
You see, we don't come to Jesus to receive his Holy Spirit so that we can do greater works like, like we're coming to X-Men Mutant Academy. Like, hook me up now, uh, Professor X, with my superpower in the Spirit. You see, he doesn't enable us to do greater work in quality. He enables us to do greater work in quantity. That through the church, we will reach further than Jesus physically did during his earthly life. And that happens through the Holy Spirit, enabling the advancement of God's mission through very normal people like you. God has made his home and his dwelling, his church, we who are elect and redeemed, and he has chosen to use broken vessels like us to advance his kingdom to the ends of the earth. This also was promised in Joel 2. Joel 2, by the way, is the text for um, Peter when he preaches on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when they speak in tongues for the first time. He's preaching, his, his sermon text that day is from Joel chapter 2. Verse 28 of that chapter reads, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. You see, in the Old Testament, again, they had to find a prophet if they were going to hear from the word of the Lord. But here in Joel, he prophesies that one day God is going to pour out his spirit, not just on a handful of elect prophets, but pour out his spirit on who? All flesh. And when Peter preaches this on the day of Pentecost, he says, this is for all of us, to you and to your children. And what are the implications of that? That means if that we repent and become Christians, then we receive the indwelling of God himself, his Holy Spirit, and we are equipped to do what? Prophesy, to proclaim. The word literally means proclaim. That means that you can't squirm out of this and say, I gotta wait for a man of God to do my preaching for me. You, if you have repented of sin, trusted in Jesus, you are a preacher of the gospel. And if you feel like you can't handle that task, good. God knew you couldn't handle that task, so he lives in you to carry it out through you. What great news, amen? You see, you've been promised the Holy Spirit so you will proclaim the gospel. You received the Holy Spirit so that you will proclaim the gospel, not so you can feel your emotions deeper, not so you can perform more miracles, or not so you can act weird at church. You received the Holy Spirit to tell sinners about the gospel and to remind saints of the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so he has sealed us with that promised spirit. And secondly, the seal of the spirit guarantees our inheritance. So the Holy Spirit, he is a he, by the way, and not an it. We've got to get his pronouns right. Um, he, verse 14, uses the word who. Um, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Ephesians 1.14 calls him the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, inheritance was used earlier in this Greek sentence as we see what Jesus accomplished for us in his redemption on the cross. We receive an eternal inheritance, eternal life, the kingdom. Remember, a, a place to live forever and a family to belong to forever. Now here, the Holy Spirit, he is our guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The word guarantee is a Greek word that was used to describe a down payment. Like if you were to buy a home, you would be asked most likely to put down a down payment, a percentage of the total purchase price initially as you began to pay off the debt. 
Now, last week we looked at Jesus paying off the sin debt. Remember, to tell us die, where he cries out from the cross, paid in full. I just want to email out Excel sheets to the whole church. I'm so excited for all these accounting terms. You have paid in full last week by the Son, and this week in the Holy Spirit, you have a down payment, a deposit. And, and what this secures for us is eternal security. It's a doctrine that we like to refer to as assurance of salvation. Some people refer to it as once saved, always saved. What this means is that because your sin has been paid for by Jesus, and because you've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and because his Holy Spirit is the down payment for your inheritance of eternal life, that means that you can't get away from that. And listen, if you're as jacked up as I am, that is great news, amen? Amen. Because I screw that up all the time. And I'm so thankful that I'm in God's economy that doesn't boot me out of the family when I mess up because all of my mess ups were already paid for 2,000 years ago on a cross. And the down payment has been issued. Jesus in John chapter 10 says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. You see from father to son to Holy Spirit, the image of those who have trusted in Jesus, who have sat down, if you will, in the gospel chair, placed all of their weight in the gospel, that you are held by God's power, not your own. And many of us forget that week after week after week. We beat ourselves up over the things we do wrong. Now, should you feel guilt for that? Of course. I'm not saying go live however you want. But you come in here week after week, not to beat yourself up, but to praise him. To bring him glory because he has covered your sin. He has dealt with it and he has imputed unto you the righteousness of his son. If you couldn't do anything to earn your salvation, there's nothing you can do to unearn it. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, what we're going to spend almost the rest of this year looking at, is all based on reminding us and teaching us that we are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what Jesus accomplished. And we trust in that. And that makes me feel very secure. When I do uh, ride-alongs with Milton PD, I like... I like um, I like doing those because I get to wear a bulletproof vest and I feel like Will Smith on Bad Boys. I like to think I look like him, but I know I don't in more ways than one. But, um, but there is, you know, I'm, I'm five foot 18 and a little pudgy, and there's never a moment in that ride along that I don't, I don't remember that I'm wearing a bulletproof vest. It's just always, it's heavy, it's awkward. When I sit down, my gut tries to squiggle out of it. Like, there's just, there's just no, there's not a lot of comfort, and it's not something, you know, I'd, I'd sleep in. Um, but it's always there reminding me that, it, that it's keeping me safe. That, and this is, this is how the Holy Spirit is just, at least how he should be if we're not quenching his influence in our life, is that he's not, he's not there to make you have a super emotional day at church. He's there with you every moment of your day reminding you that you are secure, that you're held, that you're safe. That the down payment has been made and Jesus has covered your sin and the Father has chosen you to be in his family and he is empowering you to be his ambassador this day. And so who is the down payment for? Everyone who is in Christ, every Christian. You see, when I was trying to figure some of this stuff out and I was asking some of my Pentecostal friends, how do I get the really miraculous looking gifts that you have? 
They talked to me about baptism of the Holy Spirit and how it was subsequent to salvation because we would be saved, but then eventually, once we had greater faith and were discipled some, then we would receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let me just show you in the Bible that that's, that's ludicrous. If, if you are a believer in Christ, you have his Spirit. And if you don't have his Spirit, you're not a believer in Christ. The Bible clearly says that. Romans 8 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You see, at the moment that you repented of sin and rested in that gospel chair, trusted in Jesus, you were filled with God's Spirit, and his promise is to never leave you. And he serves as a constant reminder, something that you're always in and wearing, that you are a son of God's kingdom, that you are a daughter of God, that you're always in his family. And for this reason, as Paul has just systematically went through father, son, and spirit, when he gets to the end of his long Greek run-on sentence, he just says, to the praise of his glory. That the Father, before the foundations of the world, chose us and chose a plan that, that his Son would be the recipient of his wrath rather than us. And his Son went to a cross to drink in God's wrath so that he could take his perfection and lavish grace upon us, making us holy, making us righteous, which is something we can never do on our own. And then just to seal the deal, he sent his Holy Spirit just to stay with us forever in case we would ever wiggle away from the clutches of his grace. We worship a triune God, and this assurance that we have leads us into deep and vibrant worship. Not because we're taken over by some ghost, but because we want to, because we love him so much. Romans chapter 8, I'll finish with this, verses 15 through 17. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Paul's saying the spirit you received, the Holy Spirit, is not one like, like the spirit of sin that you had to fall back into the mess that you came from. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if, if children, then heirs. There's that inheritance. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let me invite you to God today. And when I invite you to God, I'm inviting you to everything who he is. Father, Son, Spirit. And let me encourage you not to ignore any parts of his beauty. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.